0: So, hi, everybody. I'm here with Stepan Jezik uh, from the Benevitz Quartet. And uh, a little bit of background here. This is the second time that they're coming to Music and Beyond. Uh, and I can tell you the very first time I heard them, I, I, I heard magnificent things through their recordings and online, but I'd never heard them live. But uh, I invited them to come and play, which I don't often do unless I've heard somebody live. So I, But I, I liked what I heard so much that I brought them in. And I'm sure at the end of the first time I heard them, I invited them back for 2018. Uh, I, I thought it was just such fabulous playing, so beautifully homogenous, and, and a great approach to this uh, to this European repertoire. Uh, they played Schubert magnificently. They played some Czech repertoire absolutely with a, I felt uh, with a really great style and blend and sound. Um, they weren't available in 2018, and I got a lot of letters for people saying, bring them back. Um, So I'm delighted that they're coming back to 2019, actually, for four concerts. Uh, They're going to do three in in Ottawa and then a fourth one in Elmont. Uh, And we'll talk about those programs and announce them. But just a bit of background on the concerts. Um, They're playing in Ottawa on Friday, July 5th at Dominion Chalmers Church, which is our main venue, a beautiful air-conditioned venue for those of you who don't know it. Um, Then they're playing on Saturday, July 6th. Um, then they're playing uh, another program on Sunday July 7th in Ottawa uh, and then uh, in on the 8th uh, they're going to, to play in Almont, Ontario so a beautiful uh, location to be playing too so welcome thank you for being part of this podcast.
1: Thanks for taking me in.
0: Yeah anyway I'd love to know wh- what are your upcoming concerts between now and Ottawa where else are you traveling to
1: well, um, the main thing is actually coming in, in a few days because we are going to appear on the Prague Spring Festival, so in our home city, and it's going to be a kind of interesting program because it will, it will mainly spin around Martinou. Uh we'll play his third quartet, and we'll play something which is called Fantasie for theremin, oboe, piano, and string quartet, so it's a septet altogether. Um, and there is this very exotic theorem and instrument being in it. Uh, I don't know if you are familiar with it, that's this, this kind of um, instrument which is actually, which has evolved from um, a alarm, an alarm system uh, that has been developed for Lenin in Russia, uh, which reacted to motion and it made sounds, and out of this uh, originally alarm system, uh, they, uh, so, uh, theremin created this uh, music instrument, which you play by not touching it, just sort of doing this magic around it, so that's, that's really fantastic uh, to look at and to listen because it sounds almost like human voice. So we're going to play this fantasy and then one more Czech contemporary piece uh, composed for the same cast. So it's, it's all, as I said, it's, it's, it's about Martinu and, and some context of it etc. And that's going to happen in just a few days, on the 24th, and then we still have some more concerts in Europe, uh, traveling just there and back and so on, but it's actually approaching that very soon we will hop on a plane and come over to, to Ottawa.
0: Excellent. Well, looking forward to it. Well, let's back up the conversation a little bit. I'd love to hear the history of the quartet, how you guys got together and how you decided to really take that plunge for the very, very difficult task of forming a quartet and really taking all the time that it takes to get established before you can actually pay the rent. Well,
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that you ask this because just today I, I spoke to a younger colleague of mine who was just asking the same questions. How can one approach this? And I'm myself working on, on my PhD, and, and this is basically part of what I'm trying to you know, somehow summarize for younger students. Um, how can you form a quartet and, and go about this? yeah well we've been we've been very lucky that's that's for sure and I think everyone who who is able to make a living on a quartet or any other um, chamber music ensemble for that matter would say the same uh, we've been lucky in so many aspects now what I see now is that first of all, it was very good that we started still as students. That makes a big difference because then we had a lot of time we didn't have so much um, to take care about in in terms of you know really um being financially on our own we were still supported by our parents etc etc so we could afford to spend you know dozens of hours just trying things out practicing rehearsing etc and and so these years of, of, of a lot of work that has to be done we we could have afforded it and then of course, what was necessary, and it it pretty much doesn't go without it today. We we were lucky in a couple of competitions, so we won some of the competitions, and that helped us to you know to get some um, acknowledgement and and get the name a little bit out there. So the concerts started coming, and some cooperation with agencies started to happen. Without that, it's, it's very difficult, because there is just so many young ensembles that do have prizes from competitions, that if you don't have one, it's, it's, it's very tough <laughs> to get around without that. So that was, that was basically it from the practical point of view. But of course, there is much more to it, because uh, there is this sort of social thing Um, how the, how how the, how the members really, you know, can take each of them, each of us, how we can take the long-term stress, the long-term pressure on playing quality, on personal qualities that just one, one has to work on oneself to overcome weaknesses, overcome. Yeah. I mean, you know, anything that gets in the way. And people tend to say that um, string quartet is kind of a marriage. Well, yeah, it is, especially in those years when you really have to work every day in order to become a real ensemble. Plus there is this one problem that it's not only about um, the personal matters, but then you also have the, the professional matters. So you have to be tuned not only personally and in the situations of every day but then also in the musical sense and professional sense plus for everyone the quartet has to sort of occupy the same place in life so what i mean by that is if a one person the ensemble is rather a nice hobby something that he or she loves to do but you know, uh, there are other things that actually are more important. that can be, but then it has to be the same for everyone. And if there is at the same time another member for whom it is just the most important thing, then this will create tension which ultimately probably will prevent the ensemble from long term long-term cooperation because that's that's not solvable. <laughs> it It must be even for everyone. And and there must be a common understanding about this within the ensemble. And you know we started 20, 20 years twenty one years ago, and it, it took some two years to set the ensemble in the in the real uh, the, the cast. I mean uh, that we, it became stable in the first years when it was a really student like ensemble. Then some changes happened happened, and then we played for fifteen years in uh, in this one crew and after that time our first violinist uh he got acquainted and later married to a swiss girl and he lived he moved to switzerland and we still kept working like this for two years i guess it was yeah two years and it was very difficult because it was a lot of traveling especially for him for rehearsals and so on so after some time with a lot of you know pain and so on, because, of course, it was, it was a deep relationship in a way. And it's not so easy to just say, OK, for practical reasons, let's just change it. And, <laughs> and, but we took this step and we found a new first violinist that was back in 2013. So now we are six years already in this new new setup.
0: Yeah. Right. Exciting. And, and in terms of, of the, the amount that you play together, how, how many concerts do you play a year?
1: Well, that really differs. Um, We had uh, we had some years that we played more than 100 concerts in one season that we don't do that anymore. Um, We tend to have less concerts, you know, have more time to really prepare for it, really enjoy it in a way also, I would say, because um, You know, we found out or the experience is that only if we can really sort of enjoy in I don't mean it in the sort of lame sense of the word, but I, I, you know, really go through it and and have a feel and have sort of also the capacity to really lift the concert through. Um, This is, I think, the main quality that then transmits to the people, you know, that people can feel it. If right. the, the listeners, if it's just another concert in a row and, and you are tired and, and so on, or you are, you know, just really concentrated on it and, and do your job um, just the best you can. And for that, you, you need to ha- have some, you know, break to do something else. That's why also we teach, which is very inspiring. It gives you, you know, I, by teaching, I I learn, I learn a lot of things by teaching. Because one has one reflects on many things, and, and you know, I, I catch myself many times saying something, you know, some some advice, and then I'm thinking, oh, you know, why am I not doing this when I actually know I should? I mean, it should be done. You know, I can I can advise others, but I sort of ignore that myself, and and then many many times one one can reflect on that and uh, musically and technically both. So. That's great, and then we come together after a few days and and we have new ideas and of course, now, when we have read, you know some some fair amount of stable repertoire uh, pieces don't, some pieces don't need to be rehearsed in the sense that we would play them well. I mean, we can play them well we've rehearsed them many years and work on them that's not a thing but but still, you don't want to. The pieces to slip into the routine. so it's nice when we come back after just you know some little break and then fresh ideas emerge and we can try something else, this or that and and fix something or change something or just bring something new in and that always gives it might be just a small thing, but it always brings great new energy into the piece if you if you play it after some little uh, tune up or or just you know, new ideas, rather than if you just take it and play it as, as you are
0: used to. How, how do you choose your repertoire? How does the group do that? I know that, you know, there are famous stories of quartet members wanting to play, for example, the Sibelius Quartet for years, but the other members don't want to play it. How do you guys decide what you play?
1: Yeah, well, that's, that's, um, of course, each of us, you know, has different different prefer- preferences I mean that I think that's inevitable Well, maybe it's not an inevitable but I think it's good after all because if if the ensemble would be just totally homogenous and everything I it would be probably kind of boring I don't know so um you know I I I, lo- I love 20th century music uh our cellist and he he loves um romantic music very much um our viola player he loves to play haydn mozart beethoven this kind of repertoire and and our first violinist, is he's just you know i think he he basically loves to play anything i mean except for some really harsh modern pieces i don't think he enjoys those very much but yeah well how do how we decide well we have some core repertoire that we all agree on and then um, when, you know, of course, sometimes it's, it's very um, pragmatic because um, there is a, we, we have a chance for a concert that we would like to play, but uh, there's some uh, piece which actually playing the, performing this or that piece is uh, a condition. So we are not only thinking, can we play this concert in terms of do we have time or wh- what are we doing in that date but also can we and do we want to play this particular piece and yeah it not didn't happen so many times that we would reject concert because of a repertoire but it did happen few times uh if it was something which we really didn't feel like that's our you know uh that's our cup of tea or or put it better, I mean, if we didn't feel this is something that we feel we can actually say something to the audience, that's, that's probably the, the decisive aspect, then. If we all feel that we can speak through the piece, that we know what we want to say and why we want to play that, that, I guess, is the most important um, part of the decision.
0: When you get requested to play pieces, is it normally a, a modern piece, for example, that fit a theme or a composer? Or what, what kinds of uh, pieces do presenters request that you play? Well, it, it can it can
1: very much differ. So, um, like this year, um, everyone plays Beethoven, right, because um, everyone's getting for 2020, a uh, big uh, anniversary. Um, so, uh, we are asked now, for instance, to play Beethoven. But th- of course, uh, we we come with some offer, and we say we can play these three pieces. And then we, and then we hear, yeah, that's great. But actually, all these three are already occupied. Somebody else plays them. So can you can you you know suggest other three Beethoven quartets? <laughs> And and that that is not so easy just to, you know, uh, throw in just some three Beethoven quartets that you don't happen to play in a certain time and just add them up, pile right. them up. Because, yeah, it's it's easy to do in the sense that you are planning like one and a half, maybe sometimes two years ahead of time. And then you think, OK, well, in two years, I mean, we can play any Beethoven quartet, right? So what's what's the deal? But then... But then you, you do this on one concert, and then somebody else, uh, some, some other concert offer comes, and they say, well, actually, we would like to have Schubert Octet. Can you do that? And then, so you start thinking, you know, so there's Schubert Octet, then three weeks after, there are three Beethovens that we didn't actually play yet. And then meanwhile, there's one concert constantly, com- completely somewhere else with the Theresienstadt Composer repertoire. So how right. do we go about that? And then, so it, it doesn't have to be necessarily some exotic piece or, you know, something, some, some first performance or anything like that, but um, it can be totally normal repertoire, but simply the, the combination of, of the scheduling can prove to be um, undoable or at
0: least very dangerous to, to delve into right and what what works are you doing for the beethoven year what 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 what's coming up for 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 2020 yeah, yeah yeah so we um
1: we have one program where we play opus 18 number 2 quartet um as from the Lobkowitz uh set and then we do opus 59 number 1 from the razumovskis and opus 132 which is Actually, the very first late Beethoven that we did in in two thousand and three, I think it was when we started with that. So that's the longest uh, that we have spent with one of the late Beethovens, which we later played uh, gradually all of them. But that that's 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 that. And then that that is actually the thing that we've been invited to to France Orléans, where where. Um, there's uh, the complete Beethoven cycle being played by various quartets. And we have offered exactly this uh, this triptych. And, and they said, well, it's really wonderful, but all these are already occupied. So there we will do 18 number 5 plus Serioso, opus 95. And then in the second half, it will be 59 slash 2. So another 3 Beethoven. So that's already 6 that's right you know with other repertoire around it's becoming then quite quite tough of course
0: wow have you played all of the beethoven quartets in the history of the uh Benavits quartet not,
1: not yet we are missing okay. you we are we are unfortunately and i very much hope we will make up for it we are still missing 18 number one we did not play all together 18 number six only in the very first uh, cast uh, Very first um, w- with the very first members, which are no longer in the quartet, so right. I can't really count, count that one in. Yeah. And we didn't play Opus Fifty Nine Number Three. Other than that, ever we did all, wow, you know, no Fifty Nine Number Three, we didn't do. But okay. other than that, we did all of them.
0: Yeah, wow, exciting! And how much repertoire would the quartet play in a year? Like, how many different pieces? yeah it actually it, it doesn't seem but well, we
1: always happen to study about ten new pieces each season it, it you know it comes close to ten new things and, okay and all together, um what we actually play i, I ooh, that's that's tough to answer for me um right. Well, I, w- I would really have to count that. I have no idea in a way.
0: It's, so it's, 10 it's, new ones, and then you pull things that you've played in recent years that you know are going to come together much more quickly then, is that...
1: Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you know, it, it, it really happens so that it, because of, of you know, this or that concert, um, something is required that we actually didn't play so far. So it, it can easily come um, come up to 10... Totally new pieces that we study throughout the year. Sometimes it's a little less. I I think 10 is a maximum but of wow. course besides that we do a lot of, of the repertoire we, we've already done and it, it, it is probably going to be less and less of the new pieces in a season because we will <laughs> know more and more pieces meanwhile right. So it's, it's of course uh, yeah uh, that's quite simple as it is but yeah, we, we were sorry uh, last season we had a beautiful offer in, in Italy, but that would have been very difficult. We, we were scheduled to play the complete Mozarts. The, uh, even the early uh, ones,
0: like the whole... Yeah, I think them. it's... If wow. I'm not
1: mistaken, 26 quartets. Yeah, uh, but
0: yeah. Then, but then,
1: unfortunately, the, um, the finances were cut off in Italy. That was in Rome. Oh, no. So first they said, well, actually, it's not, it won't be the whole set. It will be just the, the late ones. He we said, well, OK, anyway, that's it's nice enough. And then they had to postpone the project. So I don't know when, th- when this is going to take place. But I was really looking forward to that because I like these complete things. I think it's, it's a wonderful experience. We've done complete bar talks um, twice. Once it was in one evening, which was crazy, I have to say, it, it's yeah, really wow. hot. It's it's three hour concert with two breaks and you play the very difficult ones number five and number six in the end in the in the third uh, third, third third of the concert and it's not um very very convenient. The other t- that was in uh Firenze in, in Italy. And and the second time we did it in Uppsala in Sweden, and that was better. That was during the weekend, so we played Number one, three and five on Saturday and number two, four and six on Sunday. And that's nice because you still have the, uh, the chronological set, which I think set up, which I think is very logic with Bartok. And, and it's, you know, starts with the first, ends with the last, which is a beautiful ending. And it's great when you finish uh, the last piece of such a big set, It really, it feels different. Uh, Than if you just play one uh, of them. So I guess, and I very much hope we will be able once to do this with Beethoven. It would—it's really my dream to do that. And I—and I look uh, with big respect to all the ensembles that have achieved this, that they play complete Beethoven cycle. It's—it's only yes. it's a dream for a classical quartet, which we, which we probably are, are very classical style of players. I
0: think. Well, let me know when you're wanting to do it. Yeah, we'll figure it out. We've had fun with it. We did uh, uh, the complete Shostakovich quartets with the Bordine quartet, but that was over five concerts and really spread out like every two days. Uh, yeah. And it was easier for the audience to really take it in, in a way to really see the evolution yeah. and people just loved it. Um,
1: yeah, that's the, that's the only weakness with, um, with, with the cycles like this is, of course, if it's too much... On one side, musically, like we were thinking about doing complete martineau, but okay. we abandoned the idea because um it wouldn't have enough contrast, and it would work out for you know just a few people who are terribly interested in martineau it would of course they would appreciate that, but for i you know in brackets normal listener, whoever that right. is, um, it probably wouldn't be so enjoyable after you know, uh, three of those quartets and just going on and on. So, but with Beethoven, that's the thing. It's just, um, the good point there is that you can always combine an early one, a middle one, and a late one, Mm -hmm. and you have a lot of variety within this, you know, with just this one composer, you can really find a lot of variety and, and different styles and different expression um, to, to such extent that it is not a problem to just concentrate on Beethoven and, and with Mozart, actually pretty much also, uh, probably not so strongly, but, but, you know, as well, of course, as the, his early quartets can't compare to the late works. I mean, this is just different world, basically, um, musically speaking. So, yeah, too, um, that's possible. With Bartok, for instance, it's it's a little harder um, because, of course, there are huge differences. But people, I don't think they 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 still hear the 20th century language, and I think it can be tiring for some people. Uh, yeah, that's just. But if if it's in two days,
0: I think it works nice.
1: It did right. We, we enjoyed it
0: rather than fatiguing. Well, let's talk about the repertoire you're going to play at Music and Beyond. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the pieces and. And also maybe sharing some of the input uh, uh, that your colleagues have on it, too, you know, on, on, on how these pieces are. Because, it, it, you know, we have three fabulous programs. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the repertoire and how the quartet approaches it. But interestingly enough, um, we don't hear string quartets play much music from the Baroque period. But the very first piece we're hearing is our excerpts from The Art of the Fugue. uh yeah. Which does get played and transposed. Tell us about that a bit.
1: Well, um, the 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 choice why we why we put it in the program is is very simple i think it's to everyone anyone who knows about uh mendelssohn then it's quite obvious in the sense that um mendelssohn is the one who rediscovered bach um he he went into well i mean Risk. It was not a risk because he was very young. He didn't risk anything really, but let's say he went against the stream in the sense that Bach was regarded as like a, something like musical math- mathematician in during um, Mendelssohn's early uh, years and, and he, he just didn't care about it because he thought the music was fabulous. The, the, the incredible thing is that he uh, was given the score of the Matthew Passion when he was eighteen, and when he was eighteen, he he just totally fell in love with it. He, you know, played it on his piano. He he, he got acquainted with the whole huge piece. With, you know, can you imagine a 19, 18 years old kid just, you know, uh, falling in love with this and and going through the score for hours and hours? It just must have been incredible. And he thought it's absolutely genius. And he didn't stop there. He just got um, the resources, people, place for it and everything. And he uh, put together this new uh, new uh, premiere, sort of, the, the second premiere of the piece, I would say. And people were totally amazed. So, and that's how, how this whole Bach thing sort of started. So that's why Bach is in there. Uh, in the program and yeah, then, and then you are
0: following with Mendelssohn and you're you're doing the A minor opus 13 quartet why that quartet of all the well, Mendelssohn's you could have played yeah
1: of all the Mendelssohn's well yeah. um, we, we love this one <laughs> right right we like this one very much um, it is a very personal quartet uh, for Mendelssohn it has, um, it has this, this quote of the, um, of the song that he has written um, prior to the quartet for a lady, young lady who lived in the same street as he did, and he was in love with her, and he wrote a song uh, for her, um, basically explaining that he's in love with her, and uh, the song is very beautiful, and he used the motive um, in this quartet and at the same time now i will just um, go a little bit ahead of myself um, after the the mendelssohn we play we played 132 by uh, by beethoven um, is that true it's true that's, that's exactly it. It. Yeah. Yeah, i was just seeing you no. looking at the picture like just it, wanted to check it. yeah make make sure yeah <laughs> and um, you know there were two huge influences in uh, on Mendelssohn then one of was Bach which I already mentioned and the other one was Beethoven and in particular the late quartets and again you know this, this young Mendelssohn he must have been uh, in a true sense a real rebel because everyone believed that you know towards the last years Beethoven just got crazy and and you can't really take the music seriously including his uh, Mendelssohn's father who who very much believed that and and Mendelssohn just went again into it, um, went through this course, and, and was profoundly touched by the music, especially by Opus 132. And so many themes, many details really reflect on that piece. Also, the key is the same, but that's the least important, I would say. But, uh, but you can he- really hear some similarities. Um, there, are, there are some moments that are completely similar, like um, Beethoven does, the, the transition into the last movement he is uh, is the same as in his Ninth Symphony, there's this recitativo. Uh, Mendelssohn uses the same recitativo um, in another spot in the quartet, but it really uh, sounds very much alike. And, and the whole atmosphere of the first and last movement are very much alike to Beethoven's. Um, and. In the second movement, he uses a fugue, which of course might reflect on the grosse fuge, which is not in one hundred thirty-two but one hundred thirty-three, and of course it might reflect also on Bach, whom we play as a first piece. So that's you know that's how the the whole um, program is constructed. I would say um, that that all the pieces sort of should come together and are. have a lot of interconnections
0: yeah well it's great to hear you know the thought process and this is a program that is really thought out that really ties together the same way maybe a great chef would put together an amazing meal having all of the courses kind of interact so it's fascinating um the next day on the sixth you're playing uh, a program with mozart martinu and dvorak so you're playing mozart's dissonant quartet do you play that pretty well every year is this a piece that you play quite regularly or we've played we've played a lot
1: of this quartet yeah we did it a lot um you know um, Mar- mozart and martinu uh they you know we try to reflect on the fact that martinu is a neo classicist so that's why uh, this comes together um the the martinu the third quartet um, that is very much jazz oriented that's after martinu uh came to paris and and he thought he is going to really um, discover his beloved uh, debussy, and then when he came there, he found out that debussy is long, you know, out of fashion, because you have to think that uh, in that time, uh, what was in, in vogue in in Paris, it took you know a couple of years be- before it actually the, the reached. Uh, this outskirts of our country, uh, sort of 1,000 miles to the east, and uh, it wasn't I... so far as it is today. So Martinu was all in love with Debussy, and he desperately wanted to go to Paris, which it you know he he managed to do, and just to discover that no one is interested in Debussy anymore because there was Stravinsky and there was jazz coming from America and you know all new things happening and and he was absolutely excited about it. So he wrote this experimental uh, blues, sort of colored uh, quartet, and that's, that's this. Um, well, Mozart, um, yeah, there's this, this funny story about, about the, uh, but that's probably very well known, this funny story with the dissonance quartet that it has been returned by one of the Italians, I think, I, it was an Italian publisher who returned it back, that it has a lot of mistakes in it because they didn't believe Mozart can be serious about it. And there was actually published a corrected version of the piece, <laughs> <in> <laughs> Winner, which is very nice. Um, <laughs> probably wasn't played. Have you, have
0: you ever played it, the corrected version, just read through it?
1: Or? <laughs> no, we didn't. No, I, I, I never seen it. I just know it, it has been actually really published out. Um, I, 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 read about it in, um, I, I forgot which book was that. Oh, I don't know. One of the books, uh, on, uh, maybe it was Rosen's classical style or some of the sort of bestseller books about on, on classical music. Um, but you know, um, this is one of the quartets that he, he wrote for Haydn, who was of course, his, his very, very dear friend, at least this weekend, for instance, deduced from the dedication that he wrote for all the six quartets that he uh, gave him. Um, and one of the strange features of these quartets when he was composing them is that unlike in most of the pieces he made plenty of corrections and, you know, um, rewrote things and, and then took them out again and and, you know, changed things, tried things out. So when you see his, his handwriting on these pieces, it looks very different from uh, his normal standard handwriting, which is basically uh, just music, you know, and very rarely you see some corrections, probably maybe he just, you know, something, his hand slipped, so he had to write again. But here you see music going, then then like big chunk portion of, of music being, you know, crossed out and then continue somewhere else on the paper and then... So he really wanted to make sure that he's giving Haydn something uh, which, how can I say? I believe he, he wanted to make sure that, that it really is what, what he has in his mind, that it's not just, you know, let's, let's try this, it's, it's good. But he was looking for or trying to to get the best out of it, you know, the best expression, the best form. And well, because he was amazed by what what Haydn was able, um, was capable of doing, especially when the Opus 33 Haydn quartets came out and they played it together in Vienna, Haydn and Mozart, uh with with um Vanhall and Karl Dietres von Dietersdorf. They had these Court at evenings that they played things together and were talking about their repertoire and this essentially probably must have been a dream because you know they played it they didn't have to take care about what is it successful with the publishers or audience or anybody they just played it for themselves and they had this they must have had this insight of you know they they sort of looked into each other's kitchen you know under under the hands of of the colleagues, and then they could, I, I, I imagine they must have been discussing a lot, like how is this, how is that, you know, how does that sound, was it a good idea, and and this, you know, it must have been a wonderful, wonderful moment in music history, and I can imagine they must have enjoyed it, all of them, tremendously, because other other than that, Each of them, of course, we see them as gods today, like especially Haydn and Mozart, but then they just were, you know, people that were fighting on daily basis for their survival, hoped that publishers would publish their music and people would buy it and they would survive on it. And it it was nothing, nothing easy, you know? So uh, I think these moments must have been very liberating for them.
0: Right, right. Could it, I mean, just so, so, how so, so, incredible yeah. it would have been
1: to... Yeah, just, you know, I'm I'm mentioning all this because if you think about this and how Mozart painstakingly worked on these quartets, it, it puts it even into a more sort of funny light to uh, to the vision of the publishers that it's full of mistakes, you know, because he probably took a lot of th- uh, thinking process before he actually put the final... Final uh, shape to the, the the famous slow introduction that is having this, these dissonances in
0: in it, and that's what uh, caused such a havoc. In well, that it's talk. incredible. I mean, he pushed it about as far as he could have, didn't he? That yeah. that introduction is so amazing,
1: and at the same time, it's just you know uh, using totally normal harmony with. Um, which is just a normal feature for a composer of that time. It's just that the way he does it is, is not usual. And, and the dissonances that are coming in music are more strikingly coming through than usually. And that was enough, that was enough for people to get totally uh, crazy about it in whatever sense. So it, it is another argument. Um, into the debate that we all now very often have: what were the ears? What ears did listen to music then, and what ears are listening to music today? And that's that's a very tough question because, of course, it raises another question, which is how can you uh, address people with music which is two or three hundred years old or whatever years old, and when they their ears are totally different, and how you how you present it so that it's still you still do justice to the music composed at some point but it also is understandable and interesting to today's listeners i mean this is this is something which is hard to hard to resolve i
0: think as a group how much time do you spend kind of looking back historically i mean there are books uh, leopold mozart for example on on performance practice do you spend a lot of time kind of looking at trying to understand how these things might have been played in Mozart's day?
1: Um, Yes, Um, we definitely uh, try to be aware of it, let's say, or still bring it up um, when we rehearse. Um, But, you know, there is this wonderful expression. uh, I don't know if it works in English, really. Uh, We call this now informed performance. Would you, would you
0: use that? Sure, um, yeah, absolutely.
1: Historically informed performance, something like this is it, in check. Yeah. I find it a little bit funny because I think every performance, if it's good, should be somehow informed, shouldn't it? I mean, it, 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 why, why should that uh, apply to, let's say, classical and then baroque music or renaissance music or whatever, and shouldn't apply to um, romantic music or, or any for that matter? Um, yeah, I think when one plays music one should like to understand what the piece is about. What is it that the composer wants to say and what the message is. I I know um there's there's one very nice point um during I think it was in baroque period they didn't because they only played contemporary music. Right? In I mean right. during the very Bach's time they, they didn't play renaissance music. Uh, they just played box music and or his colleagues, and they would play it once. If it was very successful, they would just you know play it again, but that was rare. So then the judgment would not be um, that this or that performance is, has been better or worse than some other performance. They would simply go. They would simply say, "Well, I did understand the piece, or I did not understand the piece," and. Meaning the performance was good because the piece was understandable or it was not good because it was not legible um, in, you know, it it was not understood. So it's different. Now we are, we we have shifted the view on the music. Now we are having many performances of the same piece and trying to decide on what is better or worse. While the important thing was whether the message has been understood or not, it's, it sounds simpler, but in fact, it's much more difficult because you really have to understand what the piece is about. What is it saying? And also have to, again, you know, have to be able to translate it for today's public. And many of the pieces reflect on some particular things, maybe on another piece that was famous in the time. maybe um maybe on on some ha- some some events that we don't know that that would not be so much in in um chamber music that would probably be more in symphonic music and so on um you know there there's just so much in and and mainly the main thing which we lack today is the universal awareness of certain um certain common musical language of course when you when you play only baroque music and you are used to it um then any deviation from that sounds quite um it, it just jumps out now you know so if if bach did or, or, or in, let's say if mozart did in his time this this slow introduction and it just was um composed differently than Everybody was used to people immediately went like, "Wow, what, what, what is this? You know, did he get crazy, or is this mistake, or what's happening?" Well, it's very difficult today to play the slow introduction so that people would go like, "Oh, this is crazy! Is this Mozart?" Because of course, after Mahler and Schönberg and you know, you name it, uh, these dis- dissonances that are in music simply don't strike our ears so much anymore. And, and so the, the whole perception has shifted. Um, in that sense, yeah, I actually don't have a real answer to that. Um, I'm still thinking about it, trying to you know um, also read some interesting books or articles about this. There's of course more that has shifted. Like for instance, um, that what I described these, these evening, evening uh, little performances that, that Mozart and Haydn had this is this is what the string quartet was origin, originally um, composed for, for a, a nice room where where the people were communicating with each other through music, and maybe you know a few people were listening to it. But um, it, it is not it was not thought to be performed in a hall for six hundred people or so, where uh, it, it was much more an intimate thing. So now there is a a, a good question: how? Um, I, I also seen it. its it's not just my thought um, in this book uh, about the Takach quartet. They are talking about the same thing. you know how can I playing a late Beethoven quartet, how can I talk about the most intimate things that Beethoven is trying to put into music and and, and play it really intimately while at the same time being understood by five hundred people in a hall that are you know expecting. Something to happen. It's just a paradoxical sort of uh, situation, but well, it does lead.
0: Yeah, it does lead. For example, we hear many musicians. uh, I think, unfortunately, and not you guys. I love, I love your your style when it when it gets earlier than Romantic. But um, some people end up wanting to play Mozart very, very romantically, feeling that they're gonna, it's gonna speak more to the people in a big hall and they'll get a better reaction. I mean, we do hear that quite quite a bit. And I remember uh George Zell compared it to putting chocolate sauce on broccoli or on asparagus or something was there was a, an appropriateness for the music that he felt wasn't and i don't know how you guys discuss that but uh, there's a there's a basic purity that that i think is admirable
1: yeah as i said well um if if you do this if you if you just um if you put some some other um style on top of what what the music is expecting sort of and of course you know maybe many people would say well how can I know what the music is expecting right it's already right. a question but um, well we have some sources at least you named uh, Leopold Mozart for instance um, you know we, we, we can see how the instruments were. we can we can read some of the some of the uh, correspondence um, describing, you know, problems what what, what uh, the composers liked, what they disliked, what they expected, and so on. So we have some some notion definitely. And if we if we say, I mean, we can. It, it, I think it's fair to say, well, this might have worked in this little chamber hall they performed it, but now I'm sitting in this huge hall and I have to do something about it. You know that that's a fair point to me. Um, but I think it, it's more a technical method than you decide how you, how you can project the sound so that it speaks to people and so on, but it doesn't, I don't think you need to change the style entirely. And the strange thing, and that's very interesting, I think, um, the strange thing that happened is that for some reason, we basically got stuck with the late romantic approach. I I don't know why, but. Um, you know, when, when Mahler and, and Strauss and, and Wagner came about, they changed a lot of things. First of all, until then, the orchestra still respected and still Brahms. Um, uh, there, there are clear evidence that he counted on that, like that, let's say, you can really hear the bowing, if, if the, you know, the strings in orchestra play, you can hear it. Now they play down bow, now they play up bow. That's different. Right. So down bow would be a downbeat, up bow would be a lighter, you know, things like that. And, and Joachim, for instance, writes to Brahms in one of the letters, he writes, well, I discovered actually few notes in your violin concerto that would be nice if I vibrate them, you know? So uh, you, you see, it, it's totally you know, shifted. Now, what Wagner and Mahler did, they said, well, I don't want to hear your bow changes. I want the sound to continue. So you play down bow, you play up bow. Well, that's your problem. But I want to hear sound, which is continuing. And if I write crescendo, I mean crescendo over many notes. And, and I don't want to hear any, any differentiation, any articulation whatsoever, unless I put it down, unless I mark it specifically. Well, that's a huge change to the music and for some reason this stayed with us so what, what the sort of informed performance is trying to do besides other things is to put disc optics you know away and try to see the the for instance classical music in the pre wagnerian and pre malerian with the pre malerian optics so without these changes to the sound that clearly and that's documented it's it's you know you can you can just um read about that um uh before these changes to the orchestra sound for instance has been done and and that changed the whole aesthetics of sound and how you go about phrase and so on and if you Try to get before that, and and for instance, refer to uh, Leopold Mozart, who was very clear on how you should phrase with your bow and how you should always make sure that your downbeats are playing being played down bow and upbeats up bow because it makes a huge difference and all that. Well, then the music starts sounding um, very differently too.
0: Right, right. Now tell me, as a point of nationality, Mozart. Spent some time in Prague. Do you have a certain national pride in Mozart? Do you feel a connection through that?
1: Oh No, oh no, no that <laughs> You know, of course um, <laughs> From the point of view of Americas, this is really funny because because Prague and Vienna, it's like four-hour drive right? right. So I mean, what, what what does that mean? But at the same time um You know, Europe is, is of course, funny in this way that already like Vienna and Salzburg, if they would, you know, citizens of both of these cities would probably feel that it's like a a different world, you know. So to say that Mozart actually belongs to, to Czech music, they would probably stone us to death or something, the Austrians. That wouldn't really work. Uh, there there are actually some people who, who like the claim, to, uh, to claim that Mahler is the biggest romantic Czech composer because he was born in, you know, within what is now actually uh, part of Czech Republic. Uh, but, you know, it's it's perfectly absurd because he never really lived here and he didn't even speak Czech and so on. So, I mean, it's just a, a funny claim. But. No, but uh, Mozart, you know, he he was, of course, many times in Prague and and Don Giovanni was premiered here and and um, uh, Figaro was played here many times and all this. And he was very popular uh, in Prague, that's for sure. But on the other hand, um, you know, his place was Salzburg and then, of course, mainly Vienna. And that's where he belongs. I mean, that's that's just it. Now, does it mean that only people from Vienna can play his music? I, I would doubt that. <laughs> um, and I would equally doubt that we as Czechs know how to play Dvořák or Smetana or whoever the best. You know, I don't think, I don't think it really works this way. What I think is important, and the only, only thing that I can see in this whole uh national aspect is the folk uh music you know if you are really delved into folk music of your region let's call it nation let's call it region let's call it whatever then it makes sense to say that you understand music from that region better in case it re- um in case it, it uh, relates to the folk music which in case of Tvořák and Smetana, for instance, and Janáček, definitely, and Martinu, too, definitely does. So if, and that's the big question, if, you know, the, the, the players know the folk music and can hear it in the music, and, and they have it somehow in the system because they know it from their childhood, let's say, then it makes sense to say that they have it you know closer to the music than someone who does not know that folk music um does it necessarily mean that their interpretation is more relevant well maybe i i don't know i i really don't know but this is the only point where i can sort of agree with this other than that uh i don't think there is any any reasonable uh you know any reason why why we or anybody else should play this or that music better and then there's this big problem with the folk music that if you ask most of the people today do can you you know can you just sing a couple of songs you know some songs that your mum used to sing to you maybe when you were little well then most of the people say well my my mum didn't really sing any songs to me you know and and they wouldn't be able to uh really refer to the folk music so in that moment, I think the, the the discussion about can we play it better because we are Czechs, or can you know Viennese people play Mozart better because they are Viennese? I, I think it's totally irrelevant if if they don't have this this national music in their blood.
0: But is it more than the music? I mean, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed your playing of Czech music uh, that I've heard, uh, and and. It seems to me, and the rest of the music you're playing uh, on, the, on the sixth, you're playing a Dvorak Quartet, and then on the seventh, it's an all-Czech program. You studied with Czech teachers. You were immersed in the sound who studied with other Czech teachers. Is there a sound, a little bit of a sound, that is passed through that maybe is picked up slightly, like a subtle approach that's maybe beyond musical interpretation?
1: It is very subjective. Very subjective. Yes, there is something that people like to call the Czech sound of, of you know, Czech quartet sound, which is usually described as um, warmer, sort of um, with with softer attack. It's not so precisely defined, but rather than precision and definition, it goes for um warmth and and sort of intuitive or uh, very kind of you know again in bracket's natural approach, you know um, but you know I, I, I have I have hard time talking about this you know I, I've I we have experienced ourselves, you know so funny situations like uh, we've played um, Schubert, G major quartet, but it's longer time ago. And then we've played it in Germany. I, I can't recall where, where it was, but it's somewhere in Germany. And then we've seen the review and it said that it was actually sort of warm Slavic performance. And a week later, we've played it in Prague. And, and there was a review saying that it was nice, but a little bit cold in a in sort of like German way. You know? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you see there's a lot of prejudice about this and and as I say, it's just highly subjective. I can I would agree that you know it, it, it does translate to the sound, but I think the main thing is that maybe the approach um, from the very first point of how you, how you approach the score, how you study the chord and like what seems interesting to you how what it is that you prefer to stress. Um, This is probably different. I think uh, if I may use the word more Western ensembles, (laughs) meaning West from our country, probably go a little bit more for the structure, for the clarity, for um, bringing out really the score in a a more um, detailed manner. While here uh, people don't tend to look at the score so with such you know detailed optics and take it a little bit more like you know what what kind of uh, w- w- let's say with a with a wider stroke I would say a little more in a generous sort of way if I should use a positive word, or maybe some other people would say a little more sloppy way you know it just you can put it many ways. It just depends on what, what side of a barricade you, you currently stay. And so you can call it more generous. You can call it a little bit more sloppy. You can call the other way uh, more refined and, and finer, perhaps, in a way. But you can also call it colder and more, um, <laughs> you, you know, it's just so many ways you can approach this. So it's difficult for me, and also for a very simple reason, we have certainly got a, a lot of education here, and we started here, and we worked, for instance, with Mr. Skampa from the Smetana Quartet, and that being one of the le- leading quartets uh, the, in the world, uh, actually in the 70s, 80s, and, but then we left Prague and we spent two years with Reiner Schmidt from the Hagen Quartet, being one of the finest ensembles of of the Viennese um, sort of uh, or German speaking approach, let's call it this way. And then we studied with Walter Levine, who was, uh, you know, a diehard, uh, who was a diehard guy, exactly in this approach. He just wanted score, 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 score and score. Nothing else mattered to him. He said, I see this written down here. I don't hear it. You know, and we said like, well, but, you know, maybe this uh, mm, atmosphere, maybe. Oh, what? Why are you talking about guys? I see Forte. You don't play Forte. Just play it. You know, for him, yeah. it was just what written. what's written down. I want to hear. I don't any atmosphere. I don't see any atmosphere written down here. I want to hear what's written down, you know, and that's that is very different from what you can find here in prague it's it's much more somewhere in the air you know it's not so much about exactly what's written uh, because because and of course both both ways have its point you can always say yeah of course you can't take it all so serious it's it's after all it's about the expression right well yeah but at the same time it's very easy to go a little bit too far with this and 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 start being sloppy about it. Um, both is right. Um, we are all trying to find some good balance, I would say.
0: Well, I guess that's why recording with a good producer is helpful, because a good producer will remind you from time to time that something is written that maybe you're missing. Do you enjoy recording? Yeah. Does the quartet enjoy the process of recording?
1: Uh, sometimes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it depends. It's, it's difficult. Well, all these recordings, yeah, well, I think recording is is probably just one one little stop on the way. And or I think it should be that way actually, because you know, we, we develop with the pieces we play and the pieces are being developed, we develop, and then we record something, and then after half a year we already play it slightly different. And you know, when we when I hear our recording, two years old, I think, well, it's yeah, okay, but you know, we know better now and And that doesn't mean that the recording's bad, I mean, it just means that, and I'm very happy to say that 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 yeah, we are still developing, and we we didn't just you know uh we didn't come to a conclusion that we played well enough, so let's keep it that way or something we We are w- very well aware of the fact that it's never sort of like definitive or good enough or whatever it's it just has to develop, and otherwise it it won't be alive. It's the only only way to keep things alive is that you still keep developing them and then trying to find some new ways and new inspirations. That's just how it is.
0: Right, right. Now, I know it's late where you are, so it won't take up much of your time. I just wanted to uh, encourage everybody. I totally love the Benevitz Quartet, the, the whole approach to music making. As you can see, there's a lot of a lot of passion and a lot of intelligence and it's, uh, it's, it's really trying to coax out the most beautiful aspects of the music and a, and a blend that really is second to none. I've really enjoyed this group. So I hope you come and hear them uh, at four concerts in the Ottawa area from uh, the 5th of July to the 8th of July. So, um, uh, Stepan Jezik, thank you so much for taking the time uh, and uh, I, I could go on for hours, but I know you've got to get some rest. So, so uh, really looking forward to seeing all of you and hearing you play again.
1: Well, thank you for having me on and, you know, we are really excited to come again. Um, You know, big thanks for the re-invitation because the re-invitation is always special. I I have to say, this is something I really learned. One thing thing is to be invited, but completely other matter is to be re-invited because that, you know, that means much more. Because you know that people really enjoyed that and that something worked out very well. And that's actually a big encouragement uh, for our work that, you know, uh, that people did enjoy it. And then something has been really transmitted, understood and, and, and so forth. So, yeah, thank you very much. And we are very much looking forward to coming in.
0: Okay, we're well, looking forward to hearing you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we have many more coming up. Uh, just click subscribe and we'll notify you when we do a new one. Thanks so much for watching.